Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh. Powerful conversations helping you reconnect with your purpose. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Luke Robertson. Luke is a record-breaking explorer, adventurer and endurance athlete. In January 2016 you became the youngest Brit and the first Scot and one of only 20 people in history to ski solo, unsupported and unassisted to the South Pole in Antarctica, covering a distance of 730 miles and spending 40 days completely alone. You became the first person in history to ski to the South Pole with an artificial pacemaker and also the first to do so after undergoing brain surgery. You're a TEDx and motivational speaker, as well as an ambassador for Greener Scotland, Marie Curie and the Polar Academy. Incredible. <laughs> Luke, it's an absolute honour to have you here. Thank welcome, you. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You're absolutely welcome. Um, we've been trying to get this planned for a, a little while now and I'm, we have, yeah. I'm glad it's finally come together. It's finally happened, yeah. It's great <laughs> to be here. Thanks for having me along. You're absolutely welcome. Okay, so, I mean, I'd, I'd really like to start, I suppose, by just talking a bit about your background, um, you know, kind of where you grew up and, and what you were like uh, growing up. What it was like growing up, you'd have to ask my parents that. No, um, so I was actually brought up on a farm in the northeast of Scotland, just between Aberdeen and Stonehaven. So a very kind of rural upbringing, mm -hmm. always out and about on the farm, causing trouble and kind of exploring from a young age in the woods and making dens and things. Cool. Um, the first sort of adventure we went on probably as a family was when my parents decided to, to go over and live in France for a year and a half, just pack, pack up the car, myself and the dog and just move off to France for a year and a half and I went to a French school over there so I spent a year and a half oh. in a French school as opposed to going to an English speaking school so that was you know a pretty that was a pretty interesting time when you, you get dropped off at the first day of school and yeah. no one else can speak English and you can't speak French so um, so it was, it was you know being thrown at the deep end but it was a great experience and then uh, we came back and my dad farmed again in Scotland and and then uh, I went to, to Mackey Academy in Stonehaven and, uh, and onwards from there, so. Okay, excellent, good intro. Um, I've seen your LinkedIn profile, you dabbled with uh, student life a fair bit, shall we say? I did, yeah, taxes. <laughs> uh, I didn't fancy paying taxes as long as possible, but uh, no, in all seriousness, I, uh, I've, I've always enjoyed learning. I went to Glasgow University to study history and French um, for four or five years, and you know, I loved it to bits. I loved the subject of history, but Mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily want to go on and become a teacher. I didn't think I'd be very good at it. Hmm. Um, and so I went and, and, and studied geophysics and meteorology at Edinburgh uh, yeah. for a couple of years. And then as a summer job, I ended up doing finance in London. And okay. uh, I, I enjoyed that, to be honest. I thought it was, a, it was quite a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So I came back up to Scotland, did a master's in investment and finance. And then, uh, and then started working and eventually paying back those taxes that I'd, uh, <laughs> I'd taken from the taxpayer for far too many years. So, yeah, yeah it was uh, yeah, probably far too long studying. My parents would say that anyway. Was, <laughs> yeah. And you've, you've worked in finance since then? Is that I right? have, yeah. It's been almost six years now, actually. So, uh, yeah, for my, for my sins. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so a bit, bit too long. But, uh, but no, it's been enjoyable. Met lots of, lots of great characters, lots of good friends as well. So mm -hmm. um, I certainly wouldn't have changed it. It's good to hear. Good stuff. So, I mean, obviously, per the introduction, you have had, um, I suppose, health difficulties, mm -hmm. shall we say, um, and kind of overcome a great deal of adversity with that. Um, your your pacemaker. What what happened there? Yeah. So that was uh, one of one of the two health issues you, you mentioned there, and that was mm -hmm. really quite a big surprise. So I was in my final year studying at Glasgow, doing this history and French degree, and I was studying pretty hard. 
uh, probably due to lack of studying for the prior four years, but to try and, you know, for the final exams, the, the big push. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that I was, my heart felt like it was skipping beats. So I went along to the doctor and just mentioned it in, in passing and said, you know, I'm studying hard, is it a lot of, perhaps it's pressure, strain mm -hmm. and things. And, and he said, well, let's put you on a one day ECG just to make sure everything's okay. So I went on a one day ECG to, to monitor my heart. And he said, we, we want to double check a few things. We just want to put you on a, on a five day ECG. So, so you know, okay. a, a few alarm bells, but again, you know, I was played a lot of sport at uni and was pretty active before that as well when, when I was young. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so didn't think anything more of it, to be honest, and expected it all to come back okay. Yeah. And then I was giving blood uh, in Nelson Mandela Place in Glasgow in the city centre. And I, well, I was trying to give blood uh, and they asked me, they said, are you waiting on any hospital results? And I said, just, just one you know, to look at potential any heart issues. And she said, no, you, you can't give blood. All right. So I left and turned my phone back on when I got outside mm -hmm. and I'd returned my, my ECG uh, a few days earlier. And this was my GP on the phone telling me uh, that I needed to have an artificial pacemaker put Jesus. in over voicemail. Uh, wow. So, cause he needed to get in touch with me, but couldn't cause I was inside trying to give blood. Uh, so that was a bit of a shock. The only person that I knew who had a pacemaker at that point was my granddad, who is now sadly passed away, but he was over 90. Mm -hmm. And so that didn't fill me with huge amounts of confidence. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I started Googling as, as most people do and, and checking to see what, what could actually be wrong with you. Yeah. And it's never a good idea because a lot of people <laughs> like to be doctors online. And uh, <laughs> so reading that, I was, I was pretty worried. And then it wasn't until I went into hospital that um, the doctors that knew actually what they were talking about uh, told me that it was a lot more about what I could do rather than what I couldn't do. So, um, so yeah, it was only, I, so that was about a week before my final exam. So I went and, and studied and, and took my final exam. And the next day I had my pacemaker fitted. So it was a pretty, uh, pretty crazy time, but, but yeah, so that was the kind of the background to that. Yeah, wow. <laughs> okay, so I mean, how then did, did that impact your um, your kind of mental well-being and, and your the way that you approached the stuff that you did in life did it have a significant impact or it yeah. did it had a huge impact to be honest um, it was my first health issue beyond a cold to be honest um, and you know I was lucky in a way that I had that week where I was studying so hard for these exams that it took my mind off it yeah uh, and then going in so I had really no time to rest and my friends went out for drinks after their last exam and I, I went in to prepare to go into hospital for a couple of days. Yeah. Um, and really from then on is when I started really hard, you know, thinking hard about what I really wanted to do with my life. Um, and this the sort of the idea of legacy mm. and what you want to achieve and also what you want to leave behind. Uh, yeah. The bigger picture thing that perhaps some people think about in later years mm -hmm. um, and not necessarily when they're a student. Exactly. Uh, enjoying university a bit too much and kind of um, yeah. and, and just focusing on getting through exams so really that was a kind of a bit of a kick start mm -hmm. I started thinking about what my passions were but I also had a lot of, of um, um, student loan to pay back as well <laughs> so it wasn't a case of just jumping in and, and doing what I wanted to do straight away yeah yeah but it had a huge huge impact on, on, on what I wanted to do with the rest of my life I could absolutely imagine yeah mm. wow Okay, so I mean, I, I know that you've done a number of challenges, or certainly had done so prior to doing your mm. your big one. Mm. Um, what was the sort of timeline on those, and, and when did you decide that you had an interest in doing expeditions and 
crazy challenges? So I suppose there's never, you know, when I was young, I loved sport. I played a lot of uh, football, rugby, badminton, swimming, mm-hmm. almost anything that I could get away with. <laughs> and I loved the outdoors. I was in the scouts, the young naturalists, um, various outdoor groups. And so it was kind of a combination of those two things. And then again, being brought up on the farm, mm-hmm. really, you know, I just loved spending time outdoors. And I started reading about when I was younger about the polar explorers of the early 20th century. So um, Scott and, and Shackleton and Nansen and those kind mm-hmm. of characters who really, you know, captured my imagination in a, in a, you know, in a way that had never been done before. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, those kind of characters were, to me, they felt like characters from a bygone age, you know, kind of a hundred years ago, um, be- before the First World War, you know, I study those yeah. characters in history. There's no one really doing that in this day and age. So I felt quite distanced from it. Um, but always had this fascination about adventure and explorers and watching Indiana Jones, for example, all these yeah. kind of different aspects came into play. And then I suppose it was reading uh, when I was recovering. So I had to take some time off sport from um, when I had the pacemaker put in and I started reading mm-hmm. uh, books about modern day polar explorers, people like, like um, uh, Ranulph Fiennes, Sir Ranulph Fiennes and people that were going back to Antarctica and, and going and doing these amazing expeditions. And this was in the modern day. Mm-hmm. You know, these were people that were breaking the boundaries of, of, of human endeavor. And it just seemed yeah. pretty exciting, <laughs> to be honest. And I thought, well, you know, if it's people, uh, you know, again, people like Ranulph Fine seemed like this kind of enigma, this amazing, and he still does, to be honest. But these yeah. characters and, and, you know, a part of me thought, you know, I'd love to do something like this. But part of me also said, there's no chance I can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started reading a, a lot more about it and kind of thinking of whether or not it could be possible. And, and it, slowly I started putting the jigsaw pieces together and it became apparent that it wasn't necessarily going to happen, but there was ways you can enable yourself to get into a position where it might happen. Okay. <laughs> so that was a kind of, there's no kind yeah. of straight, narrow path. It wasn't as if, you know, I had this kind of adventure or bloodline. My dad's a farmer, my mum was a nurse brought up in the east end of Glasgow so there's no kind of uh, genealogy that, that kind of traces back and says you know anything like that so it was just a, a number of different elements in, in, in my life when I was growing up that kind of contributed towards um, this, this interest I suppose it, as it was at that point. Yeah and, and so what are some of the challenges that you did I know you did three peaks. Yeah and, so um, uh, you went to Iceland is that right? Uh, so yeah when I was at uni we, we, I did a lot of skiing and kind of sports and then uh, towards the end of uni, just you know, within a couple of weeks, a few my fr- um, a few pals and I just decided we'd we'd take a few bikes that we had down um, and try and cycle between three peaks, the highest peaks mm-hmm. in Wales, England, and <laughs> Scotland, and climb them between. So we had a a kind of um, AA roadmap, and that was pretty much it. Um, one of my friends was on a pink mountain bike. Uh, I was on a borrowed bike that didn't fit me. Uh, I think there was one person on a road bike, and that and that was it. Um, but that was a kind of it was just an amazing little adventure. We got driven down by a couple of other friends and, and we took it on and we, and we cycled, you know, for six or seven days, which was actually quite quick considering our kind of lack of prep and everything else. Um, and I loved it. I just, I loved every second of it. And I thought, you know, this is the kind of the, the, the biggest small adventure I'd done at that stage. And this was in my, I must've been 20, 21. Right. And I thought, you know, this is, this is great fun. <laughs> you know, why would you not want to do more of this? So I, yeah. I kind of tried to put in a, a few different plans to do to do bigger and bigger things mm-hmm. um but again with the, the pacemaker incident that kind of i thought you know would i ever be able to do anything like this ever again yeah initially and, and the, but it was the doctors and, and people that, that kind of spurred me on and said absolutely 
Really? And instead, it kind of made me more focused to do more things like that. So, yeah. so, um, so yeah. Uh, and and then from then it's kind of it's grown from there. Yeah, I totally. Suppose, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's good experience, I suppose, but it's not quite the hundred mile an hour winds or the minus fifty conditions that you get in Antarctica. It, it's you know? not, but sharing a <laughs> sharing a tent with seven of your closest <laughs> pals in a kind of, in a three or four man tent was uh, was pretty horrible conditions as well. Uh, so I, you know, if you were to give me that versus being alone in a tent in Antarctica, I know I'd choose again. So yeah. <clears throat> so. You found out that you had uh, a mass on your your brain. Yeah. Um, how did you find that out, and what was the original, um, you know, sort of prognosis? Um, so the original prognosis for that was I had a few migraines, effectively, and this okay. was in um, late two thousand and thirteen, early two thousand and fourteen. Mm-hmm. And um, despite having the pacemaker and, and kind of an unexpected health issue, I I did put off going to the doctors. I, I thought it could be. It could be anything else other than what it was. Mm-hmm. So I, I took painkillers and, and I, I took very, very strong painkillers. And then it got to the stage where I couldn't sleep. So I went to the doctors uh, and he had a quick look behind my eyes with a torch and said, OK, we'll make you an appointment for a CT scan. I couldn't have an MRI scan because of my pacemaker. And um, so I was quite surprised when I left the doctors and got a phone call from him at kind of seven o'clock at night um, saying, we've got you an appointment. Uh, the the Western General for tomorrow morning at eight o'clock. Uh, so oh I was like, God. well, okay, that's, I mean, that's amazing service from the NHS, which I've always had, mm-hmm. um, and especially after what happened with the, with the head incident. But I thought that's pretty special treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, I still kind of, you know, didn't didn't believe that it could have been what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so I went into hospital the next day, and yeah, right. And uh, so I went into hospital and. They, they gave me a CT scan and, and then took me back out, uh, put some dye inside me so they could get a clearer picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I went back out and sat down and then got asked to, to go into a small room with one of the, um, one of the doctors, <coughs> consultants, and was told I had a brain tumour. Um, so, you know, you, you leave work and you put on your, your calendar that, you know, you'll be back in an hour. And then in, in 45, minutes, 45 minutes later, you're being told that you've got a brain tumour and you, you won't be leaving hospital anytime soon. Yeah. It was a, a pretty big shock. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what was the, the, the treatment and how did they, you know, how did they kind <coughs> of explain to you what was going to be happening? So, I mean, they were, they were absolutely amazing uh, throughout the doctors, nurses. I mean, it was just completely humbling, the whole, the whole process. So mm-hmm. um, initially it was, it was a bit of a shock. I went into A&E, um, was kind of lying in the, in the, in the A&E um, area on a, mm-hmm. on, a, on, a, um, on a table, just kind of waiting to, to get a bed effectively. Um, and then the, the consultant and the surgeon came round and told me that I would, what it was first of all, they thought it was a, a meningioma, uh, mm-hmm. brain tumour, and that in all likelihood I'd be in, a, in, in hospital for nine months, uh, probably operated on a few times. The first, because of the complexity of it, the, the, where it was as well, it was right behind my, my eye, so it'd be, it'd be quite difficult in terms of not losing my eyesight. Yeah. Um, and best case scenario was, you know, probably, as I said, about nine months. So they would have to do a few operations, um, probably leave sort of part of my skull open. Oh um, and, and, and that would be it for, for quite a long time. So, you know, it was life just, you know, bang, big yeah. change. Yeah. Um, and I spent the next 10 days in, in hospital just trying to, trying to understand and trying to, to, you know, understand what was going on and try to process what was going through my head, which my friends and family were amazing and, and helped with so much. What was going through your head? Um, 
I was kept pretty busy, so I tried to keep busy myself and also friends and family. I didn't want to see any visitors because I told them that I would see them when I was fit and well. Mm-hmm. I didn't want the kind of sympathy. I don't take sympathy that well. I like just to just to get on with things if I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it was was coming back to that point I, I talked about before about having the pacemaker and the legacy and thinking again you know, this is a, a pretty big thing to happen. What if, yeah. what if this is it? Have I done everything I want to achieve? Have I touched on anything I want to achieve mm-hmm. um, at that point? And the answer was probably no. <laughs> I wanted to do a lot more. Um, I felt I'd, I'd had a fantastic life, amazing friends, family. You know, couldn't have asked for any more, but there were things personally I wanted to achieve and, and, and you know, leave behind when, when, um, when, when time's up. Yeah. And I didn't feel it was my time. Um, so I, I kept that in the top of my head and also I tried to focus on the bigger picture as well so I tried to focus on what I wanted to achieve and what I'd been planning for quite some time which was trying to get myself to the South Pole <laughs> so in the intervening years between the pacemaker and the, 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 the brain injury sort of four, four or five years I'd been planning this trip and trying to put into place the logistics and try to understand how it could be made possible yeah. um, which was no, no mean feat and so it took quite a while and so when I was in hospital, I would try and focus on that and think about getting there and thinking about how much more satisfying it would be after hmm. this has happened and really kind of say, well, I've, I can overcome this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure I can overcome Antarctica. Um, and I remember watching the, the sun uh, from outside my hospital bed that was setting behind the Pentland Hills just to the south of Edinburgh and thinking, you know, one day that sun, that sun is, is helping me just now just focusing on that and one day I want that sun to be the thing I see at the South Pole um, that was the one thing that was kind of I could cling to that yeah. was the one constant in my life then was that I would see that sun in my hospital bed and I would see the sun at the South Pole so it was it was huge um, focus for me and helped take my mind off the what I tried to see is the smaller smaller thing of having a, a, a brain tumour as, as I was thought it was at that stage yeah wow that's incredible so they eventually removed the the mass, and it was a benign cyst. Yeah. So <laughs> I went under the uh, under the under the knife, as it were, and uh, I woke five hours later, pretty drugged up, to say the least, in, in intensive care, yeah. where I spent a, a few days. And the first thing was I can remember seeing my parents, and then the doctors saying uh, it, it wasn't cancer, it wasn't a tumor. And I, I, I couldn't comprehend what was going on. I, I'd woken up in this kind of daydream and, and didn't really know where I was. Um, and I remember just kind of asking, is it, is it worse? And they said, no, it's, it's much better. Mm-hmm. And so I was later told a couple of days later when I'd kind of come to um, that it was uh, a really rare enterogenous cyst mm-hmm. that I probably had since I was born and perhaps a head knock or something had triggered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it had grown and grown and expanded and had filled with fluid and um, was was effectively pushing into my brain and my skull and, and into my eyes and affecting everything. Um, so still very, very, um, very critical and very serious. Yeah. But I was told, you know, if everything went well with the recovery, mm-hmm. the scar, the, the sort of big 12-inch scar that I've, I've got on my head that I'm yeah. lucky enough just now to have some hair to cover, <laughs> um, that... You know, recovery would be hard, but it was much better than, than the nine months I was I was told. Um, so it came as a came as a big a big shock, and took me a while. That took me a while to get over. Yeah. Um, the, the sort of emotions that were going through my head at that point, the the sense of kind of surprise and and 
sort of delight at just something I couldn't comprehend. This was so, so rare mm-hmm. um, that, you know, I, I honestly just couldn't believe it. And, but then the sense of guilt at leaving behind the people, the brain cancer patients in the, in the, in the brain cancer ward mm-hmm. that I befriended and, and had expected to be in hospital with for some time. I had to go back into that ward and, and tell these people that I had the opportunity to leave. Uh, and, and 99% of them were, were in there and didn't have this opportunity. Um, was mm-hmm. was a real swing of emotions. Um, mm-hmm. The reason they could they didn't tell it was a it was a, a cyst was because of the MRI. So I couldn't have an MRI because of my pacemaker, so it couldn't pick up the material that was in oh, the actual true. mass. Um, if I'd been able to have an MRI, I think I'm, I'm definitely no doctor, but I think they would have been able to to find out actually what it was made of and would have been able to see it wasn't uh, it wasn't a cancerous tumor. Yeah. Um, so I went to you know a, a couple of months later I went to. A, a procedure where they, they test future surgeons and none of them guessed what, what I had. They all said it was a brain tumour. So, um, okay. so yeah, it, it, there was no mistake at all. It was just a yeah. completely unique situation of something very rare coupled with the fact it was a CT scan as well. So, God. so yeah, another life-changing experience, but one yeah. I felt very incredibly fortunate to come out of and, and, get, and again, just very, very humble, yeah. humbling experience overall. It, completely. But, I mean, I'm, again, a sort of massive... Um, life-changing event mm. to happen when you're that age yeah and kind of a sort of carpe diem realization mm. that like you know my 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 days are kind of numbered yeah and um, I should probably make make the most of it exactly yeah mm-hmm. um, so I you know the, the recovery was hard I spent a couple of months at home um, and I was just so tired the whole time and generally I'm a pretty active person mm-hmm. I don't like sit, sitting around for mm-hmm. you know an hour and a half doing this. <laughs> I'm joking. This is great. Um, but I, I find it hard to sit down and, and just relax at the best of times, which is probably not a very good skill to have. Um, yeah. But so I found that quite tough and not being able to exercise and do things. But again, I kept telling myself how lucky I was to, to be out of hospital. And then I, after six months, I went for a checkup and was told that it was an all clear. So I go for an annual checkup to make sure there's, there's no regrowth. Mm-hmm. And that same night, I rebooked the, the training trips to Norway and to Greenland to, to train for polo training. So <laughs> that was a, a you know a bit of a just a magical magical moment being able to go back and, and book those flights. Yeah. Um, and I told myself, you know, it spurred me on even more to go ahead and do this and show show people and, and hopefully help people overcome their own challenges and do whatever they want to do in their own lives. Mm. Um, so so yeah, a huge surprise, but in hindsight. Um, probably gave me the, the kind of added desire, the passion, the, the, the strength to, to believe in myself yeah. that I would like to think I had before. Uh-huh. Um, but now I was pretty confident that I had it. If I could get over that, yeah. and especially w- with the people that inspired me in hospital and my friends and family, again, that I had so much motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, it just it just kind of doubled my desire to, to go and achieve my goal. So. Yeah, it's quite a catalyst. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Amazing catalyst. <laughs> Okay, but you know, how on earth do you go about preparing for such extreme conditions? Like, um, I can't imagine that straightforward. Yeah, um, you know, Scotland's cold, but it's not. Uh, it's not kind of poor, poor cold. So, yeah. um, from a psychological point of view, to be honest, it was, um, it was okay. So I, I'd, I'd read a lot about people that come back and been you know, very, very insular when they, they came back from the pole, if they'd done a, a, a long trip by themselves solo. Mm. So I was quite aware of that, especially um, I'd asked my girlfriend, then my fiance, uh, just before I left for the South Pole to marry me. So oh. uh, I knew that when I came back, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't be 
a strange character. I had to kind of, you know, just be as, as, as a normal person as I could. So that helped me focus as well. And then, um, again, that experience in hospital really kind of focused me and focused my mind on, on having this strength to overcome difficulties in, in your life and the inspiration I, I took from the people um, that I met in there, the Marie Curie nurses and the patients and everyone like that. Yeah. Uh, and then the training, the actual training was a combination of going to, as I, as I mentioned, going to Norway and going to Greenland um, to make sure not only that I could do it, but I actually enjoyed it and I wanted <laughs> to do it because there's no point going to Antarctica and then finding out that you don't enjoy it because you're there. It's, <laughs> yeah. pretty, it's a bit too late to, to turn back. So, yes. um, so that was a kind of physical <laughs> training. And then it was lots of weights training and kind of long distance runs and um, and those kind of things. And then, you know, loads and loads of spreadsheets and and, uh, and lists and, and contacts and emails and, and everything else yeah. that's required that's really the kind of bit below the iceberg when you when you're doing an expedition, the iceberg, as, as you yes, know, yeah, folks, yeah. and the bit beneath is, is the huge bit that kind of nobody nobody sees and, and, and it's the hard work and the top bit's the kind of expedition itself, which which is the kind of, um, is the fun bit. Uh -huh. But uh, but yeah, so incredibly busy time, I was working full time as well, so helped immensely by, by Hazel, again, girlfriend and then mm -hmm. fiance at the time, who believed in what I wanted to do and, and backed me to the hilt and made it her, made it her dream as well as mine, so I couldn't have done it without her, without a shadow of a doubt. That's brilliant. So it was a real team effort. Yeah. Uh, so, so once you got there, um, how would you describe or articulate w what it felt like? Um, just to Antarctica or to mm. the South Pole? Um, I suppose, I mean, it had been so busy in the build-up, mm -hmm. you know, so I left work on the Friday and took a sabbatical and I, we left for Chile on the Monday. Um, some of the kit had been flown out before, and then in Chile, in Punta Arenas, the southernmost city in the world, we spent, you know, loads of time in a warehouse, romantic getaway, you know, in this warehouse for 18 hours a day. And then we, I was off to, to Antarctica and everything happened in a complete whirlwind. Everything happened so quickly. Mm -hmm. Such a little time to think about what was going on. Um, and then I got there and it was still busy and people were asking you questions and you had to go through the whole safety um, aspects and then you're kit checking again for the final time and so it was really really busy time mm -hmm. uh, and it was really only when they kind of said you know you're, you're good to go this is it I thought well I've got nothing else to think about now everything I need is with me um, <clears throat> and flying over Antarctica flying over the sort of um, to the start point which was a quite a short flight a half hour flight from base camp was really the first point when I thought you know, this is it. Yeah. There's, no, there's really no going back now. Um, you can always drop out of base camp. You know, it's not the best thing to do, but this is really it. I'm about to be dropped off by myself. Mm -hmm. um, so many people have helped me get to this point, and now it's now it's really about me trying to repay all this energy that people have put into this for oh. me and, and achieving this goal and, and inspiring all these people that have emailed me and, and and everything like that. So, so yeah, that was the kind of first moment when I actually grasped the, the severity of the situation and <laughs> thought, you know, what the bloody hell am I doing here? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that was a kind of the first point where I thought, wow, yeah. this is happening. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, and, and whilst doing it, I mean, how can you possibly <clears throat> go about handling the, the level of isolation and the fact that every day must just be white everywhere and the, the next day when you wake up, it's just going to be white everywhere and it's just you walking <laughs> yeah uh, it sounds like you've been there because that is actually that is actually what it's like you know that is not, not a word to lie and it's difficult to talk about a trip like that because 
there's nothing to see. It's all what goes on in your head is much more interesting Absolutely. than actually what goes on around you. So yeah. <laughs> um, for me, I think the key things that I really, that really helped me kind of get through the, the whole situation were having, again, that bigger focus and that motivation and that determination and that kind of accountability mm -hmm. that I'd raised so much money for, for Marie Curie. So I'd yeah. set my original target at £25,000 uh -huh. uh, fundraising. And by the time I got to Chile, I think I'd surpassed that by about £5,000. So I thought then, I was like, you know, I have to go through with this. People are backing me. And yeah. again, referring back to those emails I'd had from um, people that had been in brain cancer wards or had family members or youngsters that had brain, um, heart issues and things like that. Mm -hmm. that were all following this expedition and I thought you know this is much bigger than me taking a single step outside the tent every morning mm -hmm. which is the most difficult thing to do every single day this is about inspiring other people about helping them realize that they can overcome their own issues in their own lives mm -hmm. and achieve what they want to do no one not many people are stupid enough to to go to the south pole after going through brain and, and heart surgery but <laughs> everyone's got their own issues and, and, and their own challenges in life they want to overcome mm -hmm. So I really tried to focus on not myself and think about the bigger picture, think about what I was really there for and who I was helping and who I was inspiring, mm. hopefully inspiring anyway. Yeah. Um, and then I also tried to kind of, there's a certain element, that's, that's part of it, but then there's also the bit where you do can go a little bit crazy. Um, <laughs> there's, there's no doubt about it because yeah. you see characters in the snow, Seriously? Yeah, yeah, you see, um, so I, I, for some reason I had the Flintstones song in my head for about two weeks. Um, and so I would see Flintstone characters running around in the snow. Um, apparently it's called anthropomorphism, which is kind of attributing human characteristics to inanimate objects or animal characteristics to inanimate objects. So things in the snow, patterns in the snow, turn around and look at my sledge and you'd see things jumping around. And But I prepared for that, so I knew that was going to happen. So. Uh, as long as you don't let it kind of over, you know, make you irrational, mm -hmm. it, it's okay. You can kind of deal with it. Um, but ultimately, that still came down to thinking, you know, stop it. You know, focus on this goal. Focus on the big goal, mm -hmm. um, and and you'll get through it. You know, people, people can be, people. You know, I'm a big believer that people are much stronger than they think they can be, mm -hmm. and it's sometimes only when being strong is the only option that you realise how strong you really can be. You know, when you're faced with a situation whereby you're in hospital, it's completely out of your control. Mm -hmm. But you get through that situation. If someone had said to me, you know, 10 years ago, you'll go through heart surgery and brain surgery and get to the South Pole, I would have, you know, <laughs> collapsed probably. Um, <laughs> yeah. But people can be much stronger in those situations than they feel they can be. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so it was about trying to realise that, but, you know, think about that from my perspective as well and kind of push on through the through those horrible conditions you mentioned <laughs> wow yeah yeah so yeah i could imagine the sort of self-talk that you have with yourself it's just every single day yeah <laughs> just i mean even the the sort of small things you do in your tent in the morning because you know you, you wake up and the first thing you think about is the weather and if it's blowing outside you think oh no and you think i'll just sleep for another few minutes but then you're like you know if all these minutes add up and contribute to boards not making it and running out of food yeah it's pretty disastrous and you give yourself these huge pep talks about you know you can be strong and you can do this and and usually they culminate in just being just bloody get outside and stop being a <laughs> stop being a big scaredy cat uh, and breaking it down into making yourself feel stupid for not doing it um which is what happened most days but mm -hmm. you know it's not to say that tying the shoelaces and things didn't take longer and longer as the trip went on you yeah know? yeah the start is kind of you know get outside quickly and then it was 
Well, I'll just spend a little bit longer doing a double <laughs> knot, you know, just today and, and things. So yeah. it's, it's a real battle of the mind, um, just getting out of the tent every morning, yeah. um, which I think can be quite a good metaphor for life as well, just taking that first step in, into doing something. Once you do that, everything seems to fall into place. Yeah. Once you're moving, once you're getting going and you're en route towards achieving that goal, mm -hmm. at that point, that for me was, you know, the 730 miles to the South Pole. Yeah. Everything felt better. It was, you know, you're on your way and you're making progress and I wouldn't have, be, I wouldn't have liked to have been anywhere else. You know, that was, that was heaven for me. It was really? That's, that's mm. so cool. Love that. Wow. <laughs> I saw pictures when you were finished. Your, I think your nose was like black at the end. It was, yeah. I, um, to, I was, I was, you know, I was doing in pretty good condition until about the last week, really. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I, I felt pretty good. I was behind my schedule, though, so I needed to kind of push on a bit. And I was running out of food and fuel, so I made the decision earlier on in the trip to to drop some breakfast because you get obsessed with the weight of your sledge mm. uh, when that's all you're pulling, like <laughs> yeah. completely obsessed with it. And so I wasn't able to eat all my breakfast. So I thought, you know what, I'll dump half my remaining breakfasts and, and I'll still be able to eat. And then the very next day, my metabolism caught up with me. And, you know, I, I was absolutely, I was starving pretty much the whole rest of the trip. Jeez. And um, so towards the end, I was putting in longer and longer shifts, not eating enough, so I was getting colder. And um, so, you know, I started to feel a bit of frostbite in my fingers, my nose, and then it got, it got pretty bad. Um, at one point, I was about 100 miles from the pole. And I'd been averaging about 16 miles a day. <clears throat> so I was about five days away from the pole, um, max with the amount of food I was down to, to half rations. Mm -hmm. And I sat and I'd, I'd mistimed. I wanted to get to the top of a hill at the end of the day. But I mistimed it and got to the bottom because of, you know, the, your eyes play all sorts of tricks on you in, in Antarctica. <laughs> and um, so, so kind of put up the tent and this huge, you know, this wind was just howling down this hill. Uh, my fingers were wooden, um, which is what kind of what happens when you get frostbite. They, they bounce, they sort of knock together. I looked at my nose and it was starting to go red and a bit black. Yeah. And I was like, I've got frostbite um, and I can't warm myself up. I can't get enough food. Uh, I just can't get enough calorie intake. I've been calorie deficient throughout and uh, I was absolutely shattered and I had to up it from 16 miles to at least kind of 20 plus miles just to get there and the weather was, was really bad the catabatic winds from the pole were ferocious uh, and that was a kind of the that was a sort of crux moment of the whole expedition that was a you know you have to do this now or, or, or never yeah you know um, and that was probably the, the, the worst part of the whole trip kind of just the very end there when I, when I spotted the, the, the frostbite and things. And then I got to the, eventually when I got to the pole and it was, um, yeah, it was uh, not in the best state, but, but it's, um, it's <laughs> looking not too bad now. <laughs> can, a little bit of a red nose, especially after a, a couple of whiskeys, but it's, uh, but it so doesn't, I think everyone gets that anyway. So. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever think about quitting? Um, no, I can honestly say no. Um, I think, I think that if you're out there and you think about quitting, um, you perhaps, it's a tough question. I, I never thought about quitting because I wasn't enjoying it or because I didn't think I would do it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had so many motivation, motivational factors and so much going on back here and thinking about the people that were following me 
that it would have been an incredibly, incredibly tough decision mm -hmm. to, to, to stop. Um, even at the stage where I had to do my last section, I covered <clears throat> 40, 45 miles in sort of two days and didn't sleep. So it was about 45 miles in 40 hours um, on, on, on zero sleep. And that was, you know, I was sleeping on my, on my ski poles and too scared to sit down on my sledge in case I fell asleep and didn't wake up. Um, but even then I thought, you know, I, I have to do this. I am so, I'm, I'm so, so close here. Um, and, you know, but if I hadn't had that motivation from time in hospital, from people that had emailed me, Mm -hmm. um, that determination, accountability, motive, everything you need to, to really try and push it when times are hard mm -hmm. and that personal, um, you know, that personal kind of situations that you go through in your life and those times you can fall back on and think about how lucky you are to be in this situation. No one pushed me to get to Antarctica <laughs> exactly, or forced yeah. me to do this despite all the kind of yeah. <laughs> difficulties you go through and stuff. You know, it was all my decision. Um, <laughs> so the, really those kind of massively where those factors played such a larger role than, than any kind of prospect of me ever quitting. Um, it would have been very hard to take coming back, having not done it after having put so much work in it. And I, I felt it would have been letting so many people down, to be honest. Yeah. It would have had to have been a really, really bad situation for, for me not to complete it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> okay. Wow. So you're, I don't know whether you actually did say this or not, you can verify this, but you're quoted at the end of saying, I feel as though I'm on top of the bottom of the world. Um, <laughs> that was right. I would love to take credit for that, but that was actually Hazel. Oh, really? Say. Yeah, so I, when I got to the South Pole, I, was, I just wanted to sleep and eat and just have a beer. Um, yeah. And there were three people there at the South Pole to meet me in this kind of small, tiny tent. I still had to set up my own tent outside. Um, there's no kind of house, there's no like luxury hotel, there's, there's nothing there apart from the Scott Amundsen research station, which we got a tour of, but you don't, you don't actually can't get into it. Um, and so when I got there, it was about 10 o'clock at night. Um, I hadn't slept the night before, I'd started about four in the morning the previous day or so. And um, I got there and I was in a bit of a daze and they sat me down and they checked me out to make sure the frostbite wasn't too bad. And I sat there for about four hours just chatting nonsense at these poor people that were just there having welcomed me in because I hadn't seen anyone for 40 days, telling them about this, this I don't know, absolute nonsense. And I <laughs> forgot to phone home. Uh, so my poor fiance and parents at home and you know in-laws and, and everyone were, was, was waiting for this phone call to make sure I'd gotten there. They knew I hadn't slept and were pretty worried, probably the most worried they'd been. Yeah. And I just forgot to phone them. So it got to about two in the morning my time, so kind of five, four or five in the morning back here. Mm -hmm. um, and I and I eventually phoned them, and they were like, what, "You know, you could have phoned us earlier." And I was like, yeah. "No, I'm sorry, I got carried away." And uh, Hazel said, "Listen, we we prepared this kind of uh, press release for you. Uh, are you okay with it?" And I didn't. I was kind of a bit zoned out. Didn't realise what they, what they, what was in it. I just said, "I'm sure it'll be fine." And Hazel came up with this great quote, and I was, you know, I thought. So when it appeared in the BBC and a few, yeah. few newspapers, I thought, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> if I can take credit for that, then by all means. But no, mm. uh, officially, I, I, I didn't actually say that. That was, uh, okay. that was my, my oh, well. uh, fiancé that can take credit for that one. <laughs> I think she said, do you want to say this? And I said, yes. Perfect. So yeah, that sounds like, yeah, that's credit for me. <laughs> <laughs> right, sounds, sounds good. Yeah, I think sounds I good. might have mumbled it at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, Sir Arnold Fiennes actually had some lovely things to say about, about you achieving that as well. Yeah, he's, uh, I mean, he's just incredible incredible man what he does for fundraising for Marie Curie and mm -hmm. for 
the reasons he does it for them as well and all his adventures and, and things. Mm. So um, it's quite an interesting way I got to know him. I think it's interesting anyway. So when I was going through my pacemaker issues, I started reading those books about modern day polar explorers I mentioned, uh-huh. uh, Randolph Fiennes being, being the main one. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I would try and email him and just tell him how inspiring I found his book. So I found his email address. Um, you know, it's not ranolfines at ranolfines.com. It's this weird Shock. email address, yeah. And it was in about page 10 of Google. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to email this, this, um, this email address and see if I can get through to him. So I obviously got through to his, his PA or his assistant who emailed back and said, I've shown Ran your, your, your email. And he's, you know, he says, that's great to hear. He doesn't get people emailing him all the time, uh, probably because it was a very random email address. Yeah. So... We exchanged a couple of emails and it was, it was you know, oh when you're even, you know, one person away from your absolute hero, then you think, you know, it's pretty exciting. Yeah. And then when I had finalised that I was going to the South Pole and had had the, the brain surgery and things, I got in touch with him again and just said, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a bit of, of support. Um, I'm doing this, doing this trek. And he said, I'd be delighted to, to you know, provide a quote uh, and to back your trip. <laughs> uh, and, and so I've met him a couple of times since and, and he's... Uh, He's an amazing guy, the, the driest sense of humour you can imagine and just an absolute yeah. pleasure to be around. Full of stories, of course, um, and just an amazingly inspirational character. So, yeah. so it's, it's great to you know, learn so many things from him. That's and again, he's out there doing, doing crazy things now as well. So you know, he, he never stops. <laughs> yeah. Amazing character. That's astonishing. Yeah. <laughs> Random email address. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's amazing the contacts you make and things yeah. just from, you know, just why not? Taking yeah. action. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's awesome. <clears throat> so you did a, um, a brilliant TEDx talk in Glasgow Thank called you. The Other Side of Fear, which I would implore anyone to watch. I, I really, really enjoyed watching it and researching for this. Thank One you. of the quotes that you say in it is, try not to be scared of being scared. Instead, instead, try to take the hand of fear in the direction and on a journey you want to go on and you might just be surprised at where fear can take you. Mm. And I love how you basically personify fear like it's an actual, like it's something more tangible. Yeah, that was the kind of, that was. What I'm glad you, you, you think that because that's what I was trying to go for with that kind of, that kind of uh, bit of the talk. Yeah. So I think fear is something, it's, it's the most powerful emotion I think that can, and it can completely control you and completely swallow you up. Mm-hmm. It can stop you from doing what you want to do. It can affect your personality. Yeah. Um, it, can, it can just put you into this whole world of pain and it's very, very hard to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so powerful that I, I believe that it can be taken and be turned into a positive. So for me, there was the fear of, for example, not being able to achieve what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, being in hospital for the second time, thinking I would never get to achieve what I want to do. And that fear of not being able to go ahead and do that was something that really pushed me on to try and do what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was on expedition, on the expedition to the South Pole specifically, it was a fear of not getting to the South Pole that spurred me on on a day-to-day basis. It was thinking about letting people down. That fear of um, not being able to achieve this goal, again, was something that that was with me and that sort of personification that you, you mentioned there. Yeah. I thought about that and I thought about this almost character of fear walking <laughs> alongside me. Yeah. Sort of dragging me back and saying, you can't do this. You know, what are you doing? Uh, you, you can't make it today. And I would turn it around and say, you know what? I, you're controlling my mind. I'm going to push, make you, instead of pulling me back, I'm going to force you to, to push me on and push me onwards to try and achieve this goal that I, that I want to achieve and use this overpowering 
you know, emotion to, to allow me to, to do what I want to do and to hopefully inspire others to go ahead and do it as well. Yeah. Um, and I just think, you know, people, it's just, it can just be, as I said, completely overpowering, it can really stop you Definitely. from doing what you want to do. Yeah. Um, but if you can turn it around and try and see the positives from it uh-huh. um, and try and take those positives, even in the, the most troubling of situations, because um, those are the times when you, you learn most about yourself and realize what's important, then fear is one of the one of the instruments that can really try and take you and push you on to do what you want to do. Yeah, wow, that's one of the coolest things I think I've ever heard. <laughs> Push, pushing fear along. Yeah, instead of letting it pull me. you back, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So that's <laughs> that's what I'm, I'm 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 pretty passionate about, kind of sharing that yes. my experiences and, and kind of helping others to to do what they want to do through that the, the aspect of fear, cause especially in this day and age, it's something that can be quite overpowering. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but I, I mean, based on all the things that. You know, you've you've overcome and you've achieved. You've looked fear in the face every time and just said, no, "You're not getting the better of me." It's um, it's it's, it's, it's <laughs> tough. Um, I'd like to say that you know, it's been something I've never been scared because that's completely not true. Mm-hmm. Times I've been absolutely petrified, thinking about not getting to the pole, thinking about you know having, you know, not knowing whether you're going to wake up from a hospital yeah, bed. Yeah. Um, but if you can get through those situations and, and think about where you were at that time and think about how scared you were, but also the fear you had about not achieving things and and being in those situations and thinking about how strong you can be, much stronger than you think you, you can ever be, mm-hmm. dragging yourself out of those situations, then, you know, you can look fear in the face and say, you know, I'm, I'm stronger than you hmm. and I'm going to force you to do what I want to do as opposed to what you want to do, which is drag me down. Mm-hmm. I love that. Brilliant stuff. Thanks. Brilliant stuff. Um, so, I mean, looking ahead, you've... Uh, taken the fairly bold decision to pursue this on a more full-time basis. Yes, uh, <laughs> but talking about fear, this is probably the scariest thing I've ever, ever done, which is uh, leaving, uh, you know, quite a, a, a relaxed, well, quite a, you know, a, a, jo- a job, yeah. a comfortable living um, yeah. <laughs> and, and following my passion. Um, in some ways, it's, it's the most obvious thing to do. Uh, and, you know, the scary thing, a much scarier thing would be to look back in, in 20, 30 years time, if I'm, hmm. if I'm lucky to be around that long, and, and I look back and say, why did I not, why did I not do that? Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of far, far overweighs the, the fear of not, of, of, um, of not doing this, you know, the, the, the mm. fear of not actually going out and doing it. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I've decided to try and, to try and make my passion a full-time job and, and to try and go out there and share, share the stories and, and try and help others and, and, and get involved in a lot more charity work and things and try and, try and do what I, do what I want to do and do what I want, would like to potentially be remembered by, by my friends and family as, as, as someone that did what they believed in and did what they were passionate about, but also at the end of the day did something that helped others and helped the world we live in. So yeah, that's, I'm, I'm trying to do anyway. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's such a brilliant um, like raison d'etre. You know, I just think it's absolutely amazing. And, you know, I'm not trying to go to the polls, but it's very much the, the message that I'm trying to get across yeah. in doing this. Uh, so yeah, power, power to you, Luke. I think thank it's you. fantastic. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you've got a, a number of plans by the look of it for this year. Yeah. Um, and I won't hold you to any of these, but <laughs> from what I've uh, researched, you want to travel the length of Alaska. Mm-hmm. You want to participate in the Marathon des Sables across yep. the Sahara. Mm-hmm. You want to climb Mont Blanc. Yeah. And you want to do an uh, Ben Nevis Ultra 110 kilometer so is that, yeah, is that all, Luke? Not, not, uh, not, all this, not all the same weekend. Um, <laughs> yeah. But no, the, the kind of, um, 
you know, it's trying to make the most of, the, of, of time. Um, so yeah, yeah the, the Marathon des Sables is, is the first event. So it's going from, you know, the South Pole going from minus 60 degrees yeah. to potentially plus 40 degrees. So um, it's something that it's an organized race. So it'll be quite different to, to Alaska. Mm -hmm. um, but the Marathon des Sables is, is something that I've read a lot about and it's kind of, I'm just more intrigued than anything else. So I'm, <laughs> Hazel, uh, my wife, who's also, you know, incredible, um, well, she just loves adventures. She's an incredible uh, person. Is is coming out and doing that as well. Um, and it's something, as I said, we've just been th the thought of of doing it for many years has always been there. Oh. The kind of opportunity came around, so we thought, you know, let's let's try it and see what all the fuss is about. Um, and then, so we come back from that, and we're a we're actually silly enough to sign up for the London Marathon as well. So that's a, a week after that, and then ten days after that, we're off to off to Alaska for this world first expedition. Um, which is taking up a lot of my time just now, but yeah. again, um, it's you know if you're enjoying working at something, even the sort of spreadsheets and the list, <laughs> and 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 you also enjoy the the end product, then it's something that's worthwhile doing. So yeah, yeah. So that's an expedition to become the first people in history to travel uh, from the very bottom of Alaska to the very northern peak, uh, northern northern northernmost point of Alaska. So Whoa. over two thousand miles, uh, seven hundred mile kayak, seven hundred mile. Uh, cycle and then a 700 mile run um, oh and uh, yeah it's, it's somewhere that's been a, a fascinated me for a long time it's a, a huge wilderness sort of the, the, the last great frontier a huge challenge and, and somewhat something that's never been done before yeah um, and you know the, the variation in the landscapes over kayaking in the pacific ocean through the temperate rainforests of of, of south alaska up through mountains and, and traveling past glaciers through the arctic tundra up to the arctic circle and then in, into the Arctic Ocean, um, it just is something that I'm, I'm pretty excited about. Um, and again, it kind of aligns itself with what we want to do, which is um, help people be inspired with the outdoors and, and the, all the, the learning um, aspects that can be entailed with outdoor learning and exciting learning, as it were, getting kids excited about the outdoors mm -hmm. and also bringing in maths and English and science into, into this outdoors learning. Um, and again, raising money for Marie Curie as well. So, and then yeah. yes, we come back and uh, and it's climbing Mont Blanc in, in France, and then um, off to off to do this 110 kilometer ultra up and down Ben Nevis. So, so yeah, it should be a pretty busy busy time, but also yeah. pretty exciting. And again, just feel pretty incredibly fortunate to be able to do any of these things. Um, be be you know fit and well, and just just have the opportunity to do these things. Just very, very, uh, very lucky. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've you've raised a phenomenal amount now for Marie Curie. I mean, certainly based on the the last thing I saw, it was over seventy four thousand like pounds. Yes, yeah. So, so what are the what are the causes that you support, and, and why are they the ones that you've chosen? To? Um, so Marie Curie, firstly, mm -hmm. um, so they actually they helped out my my uncle when he was um, diagnosed with with terminal cancer okay. um, five or six years ago. So I found out a, a lot about the. Incredible work that Marie Curie nurses do for that palliative care. Mm -hmm. um, the NHS is is amazing, is absolutely incredible. Um, through all my operations and, and difficulties, you know, I've used up my fair share of, of NHS funds, <laughs> um, and I, I can't speak speak highly enough. That's great to um, hear. Yeah. But the palliative care is something different. This sort of end of life care, mm -hmm. um, and so that's where Marie Curie step in, and so they've been incredible in, in helping out my uncle and and a few. Um, family members from friends as well mm -hmm. and there was when I was in hospital and speaking to patients in, with brain cancer 
um, that visited the Marie Curie centres and, and knew people that did and knew of the nurses and the amazing, amazing work they did. Mm -hmm. um, I thought this is, this is what I, who I want to raise money for. Um, and so I've continued to do so um, for, for the last couple of years. And, you know, it's, it's, when we talk about inspiration, it's really the patients in hospital we've talked about who are hugely inspiring, but also the, the doctors and well, the nurses of Marie Curie who, who go in and deal with people during the toughest time you can ever imagine. Yeah. Um, and yeah. the, the, the energy they put into that job and, and what they have to go through, the nurses themselves, and, and the emotional attachment they must get to some of those patients and how they look after them. Mm. The friends, the family of these, of these um, patients as well is just so inspiring. Mm -hmm. um, I visited the, hosp the hospice on a number of occasions in Edinburgh and it's every time I go in it's just the most humbling um, mm. thing and the most motivation you can possibly get from anything. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I, I chose and, and, and continue to be an ambassador for Marie Curie, something I'm, I'm hugely passionate about. Mm. And then I also support, <coughs> excuse me, the, the Poor Academy, yeah. which is um, an amazing, amazing concept, an amazing charity. So it's run by someone called Craig Matheson, who's now a really good friend. And he um, went to the South Pole in a guided group in 2004, I think it was, and also went to the North Pole as well. And he set up this charity um, <clears throat> and they take um, youngsters, so they take people um, it, from, from Scotland on an expedition to Greenland. So he takes, um, he goes through a, a, a training process with them and an interview process with them where he picks out the children that perhaps he thinks are, you know, are, speaks to the, the, the teachers as well and, and picks out these kids that he feels have much more to give but, he's, but perhaps don't have the confidence to do so mm -hmm. um, and perhaps are getting a little bit left behind. And so he takes them and takes them through a, a physical training process, you know, a mental training process and they go on a real, real expedition up to Greenland wow. uh, out in the, in the wild for two weeks and they come back and the things that these kids learn about themselves yeah every kind of possible skill you can imagine learning, hmm. teamwork, confidence, um, you know, entrepreneurship, everything you can imagine, any skills that you'd want to, to take into business or in, through life mm -hmm. he, are learned on these expeditions. Um, so I'm a, a huge, huge fan of his um, and what he's doing as well. So that's something I'm, I'm hugely passionate really? about. Yeah. Um, speaking, you know, listening to these children that come back and how it's changed their lives forever mm -hmm. um, from, from what he does is just, hugely inspiring so that's the, another cause I'm, I'm very proud and very honoured to be able to support yeah fantastic mm. that's brilliant it's been so much fun finding out more about um, your journey and and you know I suppose tapping in a bit to kind of your why you know mm. you've overcome such enormous adversity and to be able to achieve something that you've done I just think is, is it's just amazing um, but I suppose at this stage, you know, it's time to maybe go a little bit deeper. <laughs> I'd like to peel back the onion a little bit on Luke. Okay. And uh, yeah, now's a good time to have yeah. a drink of water, I think. <laughs> mm. um, and yeah, I mean, you know, this, this show, I say, is um, about reconnecting with your purpose. It's about what is the thing that um, is going to drive you through the hard times? What are your real passions? Mm. What is it that you love doing? Like, go do that, mm. you know? In terms of, of you, what would you say is your why or your purpose? Um, I think it changes all the time. I think over the last few years, it's been something that I've thought a lot about when we mm -hmm. talk about legacy and purpose and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and perhaps it's come, it's come to me a lot earlier 
than it would have yes. if I hadn't had these these unusual situations with with my health and then the South Pole as well, which <laughs> planted a lot of seed and, and thought in my mind. Um, I see my purpose now as being lucky enough to be in a position where I feel I've learned a lot from these experiences. And for me, it's about trying to help others now. And mm-hmm. it's about trying to share my experiences and help other people uh, overcome their challenges in their life. Um, I'm not, I don't think I'd be a particularly good teacher. So the way I feel as if I can do it is by going on expeditions and speaking to people about you know, difficulties they have in their own life and showing through what I do how people can actually go ahead and, and, and change their lives and really do what they want to do and overcome these difficulties. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, going back to the legacy point, I, I want to you know, feel as if my purpose in life has been really helping other people and, and something much bigger than myself in terms of yeah. what I've achieved. Um, it should be about how I've kind of helped other people and help them achieve what they want to achieve as much as what I've achieved myself. Okay, so... so- what what would you like your legacy to be then? Um, someone that has that has improved the lives of people and improved the world we live in. Uh, effectively, <laughs> I love that. it's quite a big it's quite a big ambition. I'm not saying I, I'm a world changer by any stretch of the imagination, but if there's enough people uh, doing good things in the world, which I believe there's literally billions of people doing it, mm-hmm. um, if everyone does that and affects even a few people in their own life, then you know that's quite a nice legacy to leave behind. <laughs> I think absolutely. Yeah, well, it's, it's that, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. Yeah. Um, you can't change the outer world per se, mm-hmm. but being a demonstration for others and inspiring them to do more of what you're doing is, is great. And, you know, I looked at your website and the, the three words under your name, inspire, motivate, achieve. Mm. Just think like, wow, that's so, so good. It's great. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Um, we spoke a bit about this uh off camera earlier and I would like to talk about a little bit and it's you know when you're you're the uh, the youngest Brit the first Scot the first you've got mm. all these kind of accolades and things how do you taper your your ego or kind of manage yourself relative to all these achievements um, I think there's a few different ways to look at it the, the first is is you know relativity um, what I've been lucky enough to achieve uh, mm-hmm. with the help of lots of other people is quite insignificant compared to what people achieve on a daily basis. Nurses, doctors, people that really are, are helping people from nine to five. Uh, and so when you put yourself in that kind of bracket, mm-hmm. what you're doing is, is perhaps somewhat irrelevant. So that certainly brings you back down to earth as well. Um, my wife, Hazel, she would never let me think have any kind of ego <laughs> in the best possible way. So she would certainly drag me down if, I, if she thought I was in any way getting too big for my boots. Um, I've always tried to remain pretty humble uh, in life. Mm-hmm. Um, going through those experiences in hospital, for example, I'll always say were the most humbling times of my life. Um, when you're lying beside people that you know are in a much, much worse situation than you'll ever be in, um, you realise how lucky you are and there's absolutely no space to be in any way arrogant or big-headed about everything. Yeah. Um, we're, we're lucky to be on this earth, we're lucky to be who we are um, and there's absolutely just there's no space to be anything anything but helpful and and, and to try and improve the lives of others um, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in that and you know I'm not saying I'm perfect by any stretch of the <laughs> imagination but if we can all try and you know treat others like we want to be treated ourselves yeah then you know it would be uh, it'd be a pretty 
pretty awesome awesome thing to do totally yeah yeah i love your honesty and and you know you demonstrate an enormous amount of humility when you're uh, answering these sometimes pointed questions so <laughs> yeah good stuff how do you define success um i think everyone defines success differently everyone has different goals mm -hmm. uh just from a personal point of view i for me it's it's happiness um i'm I think the most the, hap the most successful people I know, the wealthiest people I know, are those that are happy mm -hmm. uh, and happy what what they do, happy in helping others, um, and that kind of feeds through into them as well, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it's about happiness and about thinking about the bigger picture, thinking less about yourself and thinking about the bigger picture, whether it's your family, whether it's your community, whether it's you know. It's as far as your horizon, as far as your picture wants to go. Yeah. Um, not focusing on yourself and, and trying to help as many people as possible. And, and, you know, if everyone in the world was happy, then everyone would be successful. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the people that aren't happy, it's about helping them try to, in some way, become happy th through success and, and try and really, um, and just really try to, it's, yeah, it, it's tough. Because everyone, as I said, everyone has their own definition of success. But yeah. for me, it is just about happiness. If you're happy in life, then that's all the success and that's all the wealth you need. Awesome. <laughs> some, people are, some people are happy with money. And if they are, then, then great. That's success for them. Yeah. Some people are happy um, with their fa with just with the family. And that's, that's an amazing thing to have as well. Yeah. Um, but some people need, need a little bit more. Um, and I, I feel as if I've got, you know, it's, uh, it's something I'm really passionate about is, is trying to help as many people I can. Mm-hmm. Mm. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, best bit of advice? Um, probably focus on what you can control. Recognise what you can't control. Mm -hmm. um, and be astute enough to know the difference between those two things. <laughs> um, there are things you can't control in your life. Yeah. Things that go on around you that you have absolutely no control over. If you waste time worrying about those things then you'll you'll you'll, you'll never go on to, to really do what you want to do yeah. it's about focusing on on yourself and how you can achieve your goals whether it's helping people whether it's promotion whether it's seeing more of your family um helping in the community it's mm -hmm. about focusing on the things you you can really uh you can really change yeah. and that's what I've, I've tried to do is try not to worry too much about things you, you can't control and focus on, on what you can that's probably the best bit of uh of, of um that's fantastic advice. Yeah, definitely. It's it's funny. I wrote down another quote from your TED talk, and I'll, I'll cut it short for the sake of demonstrating what you're saying. But you say, um, "When I was in hospital, I focused on what I could control: mm. my outlook, my approach, and my attitude." Mm -hmm. It's like absolutely what you're saying there. Yeah. So, the, you know, when you're in hospital, when I was in hospital, is you know, you 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 dealt this card, and yeah. you can't change it. That's the doctors have said this is this is happening. Mm. If you want to have any chance of surviving, of getting out of this, this needs to happen. Yeah. So you put that to the side and you try not to worry about it and you think, I can't control that. What goes on here? I am now in the hands of these incredible doctors and these amazing nurses mm -hmm. and you know that they'll do their best for you and you're putting your life literally in the hands of someone else but there's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you have a decision. You either worry about that uh, and worry about the future or you try and worry less about that and worry more about the future and try and change 
whatever you're worried about or try and focus on what you can change about it. Mm -hmm. For me, I, as we talked about before, that was focusing on the South Pole and, and focusing on what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Yeah. I could change that. I had the ability to, to go on these trips and to try and try and help people and try and inspire people. I could do that. I couldn't guarantee I was going to wake up from the operating table. I couldn't operate on myself. Yeah. That was something completely out with my control. Yeah. Um, and that was the best thing. That was from my mum actually told me that. Really? Um, and, and that was one of the most helpful, helpful things I've ever, ever had throughout my whole life. Hmm. Brilliant. Mm. If you had the opportunity to speak to the 20-year-old you, no, no. what would you say? Um, I don't know if I'd tell them what was <laughs> about to happen because um, yeah. they'd probably scared them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I would never have any regrets. I've had been lucky enough to be around amazing friends, amazing family. Um, I would tell my 20-year-old self just to, to do, just to, to focus on what's important which I've always tried to do, but perhaps didn't do quite then because you know, you're a student and you focus on having a good time quite a lot of the yeah, time. Yeah. Um, but you know what, I would just, I, would just I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give any advice at all. I would let myself just play life out as it has. And if it had happened a different way and I hadn't gone through this, I'm sure I would, I would be doing something that I was enjoying and I was, I was passionate about as well. It might have not gone down the exact same avenue. I'm sure mm -hmm. it wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, I'm a, bit, I'm a huge believer that if you're happy with the life you have just now, um, in any shape or form, you know, family, job, anything like that, which I'm incredibly lucky to say that I am, then I wouldn't have changed anything that's happened in my life. So I would, have, would not have told my 20-year-old self to change anything. <laughs> um, and if you're not happy with your life, which has happened to me in the past, mm -hmm. then, you know, again comes back to the point of focusing on what you can control yeah. and saying I'm not happy why am I not happy um, there's some aspects I might not be able to change mm -hmm. um, but I can control them and I can focus on the things I can actually take control of mm -hmm. and, and move forward with those and try and make myself happy and, and, and do what I want to do yeah. so you know, I, wouldn't, I, I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't change anything <laughs> I would just tell my 20 year old self to prepare Prepare for what's about to happen. Yeah, <laughs> brace yourself. Yeah, there's a few surprises on the horizon. <laughs> D don't worry about them, you'll get through them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why? Wow. <laughs> uh, could get political here, but I think we'll, uh, we'll save that for off camera maybe. Um, anything in the world. Um, clearly there, there's a lot of horrible things happen in the world. Um, it would be great to, to eradicate poverty and eradicate illness and all those kind of things, but I'm not, um, it's, it's just completely unre unrealistic. You know, no, no one has that power or, or it would have happened by now. Um, wow, that is a, hu that is a huge question. Um, <laughs> anything in the world? Um, I honestly don't, I, I can't think of, other than those, those, those huge, Huge yes. things we've talked about. Yeah. It'd be amazing to, to kind of help millions of people at one time by finding a cure for, for you know, various diseases that happen. Yeah. Um, I don't think I would, I think the world would be a lot different place if, if someone was to come along and change one thing they wanted to happen with the world. I think people would lose individuality and perception mm -hmm. and we'd lose a lot of interesting things about the world. I think part of the the most amazing thing about our planet is the diversity and the different characters and, and what goes on around it. So 
Yeah, that's a, I, I, honest, I can't think of one thing. <laughs> no, that's Sorry, cool. that's a bit of a, bit of a sort of a boring answer. But um, no, was... apart from, yeah, apart from the thing that would help people the most, I, I think actually, do you know what? It would be, here's a different way of looking at it. It would be <laughs> making, allowing people, giving people the power to be more confident in themselves. If I could take every single person in the world um, and give themselves an ounce more confidence in themselves and not be dragged down by people or what people say or what people do and have the confidence to do what they believe in and what's important to them and to stick by those guns no matter how much people might dislike you or, or, or say you're doing the wrong thing or try and drag you down. So yeah, yeah give everyone a bit more confidence in what in, in themselves. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> there you, we go. You segued into that beautifully. Yeah. <laughs> like Pulled it out the back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Last minute job. Yeah. Uh, Luke, I've just enjoyed this immensely um it's been such a pleasure you, talking to you and um you know you, you come across absolutely brilliantly and i genuinely can't wait to see um where you go with with your life thank you likewise <laughs> um i think you're you're a massive inspiration to people and um i can't wait to watch this back and and reminisce <laughs> yeah it's thank been you great so thank you so much for your time thank you very much a pleasure. Thank you for having me along. Thanks, Luke. Cheers. Thank you.